0: Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel, and welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change, leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode, information-driven leadership with Betsy Freeman, CEO of Radius Advisory Group. Betsy, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Darren. It's great to be here. I appreciate the invitation.
0: So Betsy uh, Freeman, you, you live up in Michigan now, but this is where you retired. But you're not retired because uh, I think you love um, you love this industry so much.
1: I do. So I, I love the the whole idea of problem solution, and I think we have plenty of problems. And I'm I'm hoping that I can contribute to some solutions here along the way.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your your career and your background, because when I say you're retired, you're really not retired. You just retired from working for the government.
1: Uh, That's right. I retired from the federal space, Uh, although by proxy, I think I, I sometimes still work there. Um, I'm a little bit of an odd duck. Most people take the, the route of you know, either public or private sector, but I, I kind of found a challenge in saying that, you know what, let's just see if you could do both. And people kind of warned me against that, but I have to say it's been the most exciting part of my, my uh, professional journey. I, I started out as an active duty service member in the United States Air Force. I left the department uh, and resigned my commission because I had too many children and a spouse going in too many different directions, and somebody had to not be in. My spouse and I were both on active duty, so uh, mom jumped out. Um, I was fortunate to to land in big industry and spent a great deal of time at Pricewaterhouse and then PricewaterhouseCoopers through its merger, um, working in a number of industries. uh, But the last industry I worked in was the utility and energy industry. Um, And then did what I really wanted to do is to go back to the DoD, and I was uh, very fortunate to have been uh, selected to go back to work um, uh, in the DoD with uh, uh, Secretary Gates uh, when he was running his efficiencies task force and stayed on under Secretary Panetta, um, as he did uh, a lot more work for the department when he became secretary. Um, Then I had an interesting journey to the DoD CIO. Uh, and stayed there and was appointed as a uh, deputy CIO and then made kind of full circle coming back out of there and have now founded my own consultancy in um, the last place you would expect. And that's Holland, Michigan, on the wonderful Lake Michigan shore um, out of the Washington limelight and busyness uh, and and much to my great contentment.
0: Well, and, and you guys hosted uh, Intel there recently. I got to go to Holland, Michigan. It's a wonderful, wonderful place, beautiful. Um, so I appreciated that I got to see a, a part of Michigan I'd never seen before.
1: As did we. It was a it was a privilege to have you have you all here.
0: All right. So you've you've been at the you've been at the high ranks of public sector information technology as a C as a deputy CIO and. Tell me, what were the biggest challenges that you guys ran into?
1: Well, there's probably the list of challenges. Probably you could you would have to have a couple rolls of toilet paper to write them all out. Um, (laughs) But what I would say in my in my particular role there in the DOD CIO, um, and I think this is true across public sector as well as private sector. The biggest challenge is always to look at how do you bring New thinking, new processes, new technologies, new methods of working—kind um, of overnight, if you will—right into organizations that are big. Um, they have uh, enormous scope. They have a lot of silos. Everybody has their own P and L or their own budget. Um, there's all sorts of agendas, uh, uh, professional and private, across all of those things. And how do you actually how do you actually help to institute change? Um, In those kinds of environments, we actually got a little, uh, an interesting kind of set of glasses on that this last couple of years because of COVID. And I've always been one of those kind of disruptor people um, that has said, you know, the best innovation actually um, always occurs in the greatest, uh, when we're under the greatest level of distress. And I think we've seen that. Um, And I think that, you know, from a a DOD perspective, uh, you know, kind of probably one of the largest organizations or the largest organization from a business process and missions stance in the world. um, uh, That is absolutely true. It's it's just a hard thing to try to get across all that. Um, And then to deal with the culture, uh, which, again, is similar to any other organization. Every organization has their own culture and their own way of doing things. And so trying to change that at the drop of a hat, which was one of my tasks as I went into my deputy CIO role there, because there was a very specific mission element that they created and they wanted executed like, and start overnight. Um, and there was no rules, no boundaries, and also um, no advocacy from anybody senior, except the most senior people, and actually how to get that done. So um, it's introducing so- new is tough.
0: Yeah, you you brought up culture as being probably one of the toughest things to overcome. Do you feel, um, and and you can say this from the outside, because you were on the outside during COVID, did you see that COVID changed the culture at all in in these big organizations like the DOD? I,
1: I think it did in some ways, and in other ways, it made people hunker down even more, and that's bad. Um, I, I think we were challenged all by going to work overnight, someplace else, right? Um, and that brought up all the the various technology challenges. It brings up a lot of process challenge, right? Um, and I think we learned a lot if we were smart. Um, and I think we did across the board, both in DoD and in and in other big federal agencies, and and in the commercial sector as well. I think we learned and are still learning lessons right from what that looks like but what worries me is the talk of every place um you know how are we heading back into the office and how are we and so it's like all this new environment that we this ecosystem that we got shoved into um and i think you know good or bad you can make that judgment but because you're now there and you've taken the step why would you try to stuff that back into the old bag and I think companies and the DOD in some ways is still trying to do that, right? Um, and I say that with great respect to, to leaders in, in every organization because this is not an easy thing to be able to navigate. Um, but once you make a shift, um, one of the things I've always said to people and they always look at me and go, no, it doesn't matter where you are. I say sprint everything. And it's it's why sprint everything, Betsy. That just, You just get too tired and you're this and you're that and no. Okay, so now I'm gonna divert in just a really quick story, if I, if I may. Um, Absolutely. I, I learned the lesson of Sprint Everything when I was a deputy CIO. Um, we had various projects that we were given on top of the mission we were supposed to execute. And every time we would go into these big meetings, everyone would get their piece of the, of, the, of the projects that they were supposed to be working on, and they would all get 30 days. And then they would turn to my team and they would say, um, Betsy, we're giving this piece to you and you get 10 days. Well, I, I kind of got irritated with that. I was like, why does everybody else get 30 days and I get 10 days, right? So after about the second or third time that happened, I, I went to the leadership and said, "Uh, you know, with great respect, uh, let me ask the question about why it is I only get 10 days. And they said, well, in reality, uh, because we know you can pull your team together and actually accomplish it in 10 days, But the bigger reason is is that we have to make some very uh, complex decisions. And that information is part of a bigger decision-making process. And the faster we can have it, the better we feel like we can make the timeliness of those decisions. And there's big impact on those things. And so I I learned the lesson then when I went back and said to my team, hey, we, we got 10 days and we gotta do this. And they looked at me and said, you know, you're joking, right? And I said, no. And they said, how are we gonna do this? And I said, I don't know, but you know what? Let's figure it out. And we did. And once we figured it out a lot of different times over and over and over, because our deadline was always 10 days, guess what? We got really good at it and we could do it in 10 days. We could even do it better than people that had 30 days because we didn't screw around because we got rid of all the extraneous things that we didn't need to help senior leaders make those decisions.
0: So, so this is interesting. I want to tap into this a little bit because okay. I, I saw the same sort of thing during COVID when I talked to other CIOs. You didn't have, oh, I need uh, five months to go analyze this problem. No, because no one can work. Yeah, exactly. Right? It needs to be done now. So that that sense of urgency, do you feel like that sense of urgency really helps people focus and helps get rid of the, the chaff, for no better word, right? All the extraneous stuff that doesn't really provide any value.
1: Well, I think that's where the real challenge lies. I think people generally will have a sense of urgency if you tell them they only have a short deadline to do things. But, you know, as a leader, you have to ensure that when you're asking people to do that, that they're equipped with the people and the resources and the authority to go and execute something on a shortened timeline like that. And if they have it, which as a deputy CIO, I I was given great support in that regard. Um, If they have it, then, you know, it's like ripping the Band-Aid off. You, You just, you go and you do it. And once you do it, you can, you know, you can help to kind of institutionalize it. Uh, but unless you have a leadership that's going to support that, I think it's really hard, um, to get to that. I think there, there could be a sense of urgency, but people just say, how are we supposed to do that? You got to have somebody that's going to lead the charge and come back and not just say, Hey, go figure it out. But, you know, you, you walk back and you actually sit down with the team and you say, okay. And you hear all the input and you do it together. And I, and I think that's a hard thing to do in this environment, but I think it's a necessary thing.
0: Do do you think that, I I know there was a big push um, in the 90s and and 2000s to like, everything's matrixed, right? Everything's matrixed. And do you think that has caused some of the quagmire that we're in, where things are slowed down because there are so many um, people that have to have a voice or that have to help make a decision?
1: Well, or, so in the end, I think it's important to listen to people, but let's face it, decision making gets made at the top and that should that, that should generally mean that it's a few people. I'm um, having a matrix organization. Uh, it, it may have uh, added layers of complexity, but most of the situations we're talking about were so complex already that it probably doesn't make any difference. Make any um, in any the difference, end, you know, and I'm going to, this is going to be a common theme, I think, to, to what we're talking about today is, is it really does come back to the leadership. Um, you have to be inclusive enough to listen to everyone. Right. Um, but that can't take five months and 150 meetings, right? It can't, um, you, you have to, you have to come up with ways to systems, automated systems and groups that can do ideation and come up together and suggest models and work with each other, not just talk about being collaborative, but actually doing it together, right? Which is kind of what we invited you here to work with us uh, when you came to Holland and what we were trying to do with the Intel team was to kind of let you inside of our processes, right? So you could see how we do this stuff. Um, but I think that's the, that's the key. You have to be able to to have that ability and be able to turn and, and kind of turn and burn, if you will, um, with all of the situations that come up. And you can't take forever. Um, I think people have good intentions, but unless the leadership enables them to act because they have the tools and the people and the automation. And it's not lots of people. It's the right people. It's probably less people, but the right people. Right, less technology, but the right technology to try to help them get to what you need.
0: Gotcha. Okay, I, I I love how I love how this is going. And you, as the leader, you kind of said we're doing this, so it wasn't like, what do you guys think? You think we can do this?
1: Yeah. No. Well, right? it's pretty easy when the CIO is getting direction directly from the Dept. and the secretary. And when he comes and says, "Hey, Betsy, we're going to do this," and, and I go, "What? We're going to do what?" <laughs> and he goes, "We're going to do this, right?" and the secretary wants to know that we're going to we're going to get it done. And the answer can only be, "Absolutely, we will get it done." And and then so, you go and you figure out how to do it.
0: So how do you how do you mo- motivate your team? Because obviously, the first time this happened to you, it, it must have been your team. You already said it. Your team was like betsy no
1: yeah no so a lot of pushback there i i learned a lot of lessons inside that i, I had a very large team then i had about 50 analysts and um I, I had just begun to kind of learn the skill sets of each of those analysts and to learn them as people uh, by by uh a few months out from that i knew their dog's name their kid's name their wife's name what they ate at lunch and I also knew all the skill sets, the primary and the secondary and the tertiary skill sets that they actually had. And, and what I determined was, is taking that in, taking a problem into a big group of people and getting everybody to give me their opinion on how it should work, uh, was actually very useless. Um, and it wasn't that their input was useless. It was that you couldn't do anything with that. I had to make a decision. We had to go. So what we ended up doing um, is we kind of created an interesting model where because we knew uh, what skill sets people had, we took the problem and if you will, kind of set it in the middle of the room and said, hey, we're going to cherry pick. And my average was seven people. I tried to keep it to five and we would pick the people with the skill sets and with kind of the the. The the cognitive the diversity, skill. Yeah. yeah. The cognitive diversity to be able to sit at the table and figure it out. And if they needed somebody else, like if they needed a data scientist, um, you know, in those days, I could call Intel. I could I could get a few minutes of a data scientist time. I had a data scientist on staff that I could have point three of his time every month. Um, so um, what we did was we we fit the skills and the abilities of the team to the task, and we said solve the problem. And much to my surprise, um, repeatedly, they blew it out of the water. Um, Sometimes we would get uh, questions that, you know, we would get, hey, can we have this in an hour from the DevSecDefs office? We very quickly got to a point where it wasn't shock and awe, right, for us. It was like, okay, who do we need to solve the problem? How fast can we do it? And we had set up templates and things for ourselves to be able to provide input back to um uh the depth for consideration and the cio for consideration um and we had some fun with that uh but um at the end of the day um we had a process in place that allowed us to do that ideation to come up with options because that's what we did we took a neutral stand we didn't say you know mr Sec or mr cio this is what you need to go do we said here are the options that you have based on the data that we know um, the you know the level of accuracy that we believe that that data represents, um, the budgets you know uh, scenarios, the political scenarios, the support we have from our um, um, board of directors, all four hundred thirty five of them over on the hill. Um, so you take in all of those considerations, right? The timeline that you have, the impact to the soldiers and sailors and their families, and all those things, and and we'd give options. And so and so we stayed out of the decision making, and so we could just lay out facts and evidence.
0: But but in essence, you I, I love what you said here because you didn't tell your team how to do the work. Oh no. No, no which is very empowering, Betsy. Because um, a lot of managers come in and say hey, we need to get this done. This is how we're going to do it. Instead, you said, this is the team that's going to get this done. Do it. And, yeah, and do they figured it out. Yeah. That, that's pretty empowering.
1: They, I had a lot of faith in them. And um, uh, they liked that a lot. I think it was very motivating because they would always be looking for new assignments and what could they do next. And people argued a lot then about being able to be on the team. And while we had a large group of analysts there, we, because of the nature of the problems that we were given, um, you know, they were all sorts of disciplines and all sorts of requirements. So we ended up using all the members of the team. We might have six or seven teams going at at a single time on different problems, right? And five to seven people probably on each team. Some we could use less, some we needed a few more. Um, But it just... It kind of emerged in a way where um, I've never, as a leader of any team, um, assumed that I knew the best way to approach things. Um, I just, I've never done that. Um, I may have my ideas, right? But 99% of the time, um, these teams of people, and I'm, I'm really fortunate in that you can only say this when you actually surround yourself with really good people, and I had many of them then, right? Um, and these were all different um, uh, contracts, so they were all contractors from industry, all different companies. Um, and so, yeah, so we we uh, we were fortunate to have really good people. And in that regard, you know, people wanted to be on projects; they were anxious to have an opportunity to give ideas. Um, I think employees, and I think you see this today. I think it's why the great resignation thing still keeps going. People that are employees want to know that leaders are listening to them, right? And that they're actually taking in their ideas and considering them. And that's what this, that's what this approach did. It, It allowed people to tell you, you know, with their best analysis, what options were. And oftentimes it was a combination of those analyses that we put together to give actual options, right? Back to the leadership. But the fact that we could do that quickly, and we got rid of all the junk between the members of the team and with the culture that was kind of surrounding us in the department, we were in our own little environment, right, where we were allowed to do that. Um, And that's credit to, to the the leadership of the department and the CIO's office, the, the CIO, and the principal deputy CIO, because they recognized that if they let us go, we could turn this stuff and come up with options that other people weren't arriving at. And so, um, it was so very- how,
0: often, how often would you use the same group of people over and over again? Or um, was it every time I got something new, I, I, I had the opportunity to form a new team?
1: So I did. Every single time we had a new problem. Um, and right. that way, that, the reason I did that was, was twofold. One, it gave an opportunity for, for different people to work on different kinds of work. Uh, because I think as a consultant or an analyst, if you get too cubbyholed into one area, you kind of get myopic. Um, I be- I, I'm a strong believer in a multidisciplinary approach in just about everything that we do, right? Because you don't know what you don't know because you don't see it from the other guy's shoes because you've never been in them. So the only way you learn that is to is to get people, and so you would and so we would just instantly form new teams, right? It was it was a very quick process. The other thing that I found there, and this stemmed from an initial problem I had, um, was that I had very young consultants. I had some, uh, you know, mid-career consultants and I had some uh, more mature consultants. Right. And as you know, there's a kind of a generational divide kind of across all of that when you look at the reality of it. Um, So we would mix young and old together. Um, and mid-tier two. And sometimes people wouldn't like that and they'd come and they'd say something. Um, and then by the end of the time they were done with the project, it was all about, gee, you know how much I learned from this guy? And sometimes that was people like me with gray hair saying, okay, I was really irritated when you did this and you made this young person come and do this. And this. But they really taught me a lot about how to look at this technology through this lens, right? And the younger people were in the same boat where they said, hey, we were thinking we're getting stuck with the old guys, right? Um, But in the end, um, to have the benefit of knowing why policies and procedures were established the way they were and having the history of it, that gave you the context of what you needed to understand to be able to change it in the right way, right? And update it without totally just dismantling the whole thing, which is oftentimes what you end up doing. And so, um, yeah, so there was, there was a good reason for that, but we had, we got to know our people very well. Uh, it was me oh. and I had a deputy and we could just very quickly say, um, you know, pull this person, this person, this person and go. And if they were working on something else, um, we'd say, Hey, can you work on two things? And I don't think I ever had anybody say, no, I can't work on two things. They, they just, they just did it. I don't know how they did it, but they did it.
0: <laughs> that's, that's pretty incredible. So Betsy, this, this sounds I, incredible because of um, your leadership skills obviously are, are very fine-tuned now um, that you've gone through this process. Join me for the second half of this interview with Betsy Freeman on my next episode. Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.org. Until next time, go out and do something wonderful.